Welcome to Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse. I'm Kay, a musical theater nerd. And I'm Warren. I'm musically challenged. So, remember how we're a musical theater podcast? Oh, oh, that's right. Right. I thought we were a racism podcast. Well, I mean, what is the history of musical theater but the history of racism? And sexism. And sexism and ageism and... Anyway... We finally get to talk about musicals, kind of. Sweet. Yes. So, we've covered a couple of proto-black musicals, such as the version of Richard III that was performed at the African Grove Theater, and Escape or Leap to Freedom, which had some songs in it. But now we're going to go into actual musicals that are no longer extant or performed regularly. So... Yay? Yeah. Um... So to get an idea on where all of this starts, we have to go back to 1868. And we're going to be talking about a British woman whose name was Lydia Thompson. So she brought this new form of theater to America. This show, or this form of theater, rather, I can say words, was called burlesque. Is it the burlesque that I'm thinking of? Kind of. It birthed that kind of burlesque. So uh, her show was called Ixion, or Ixion. It, it was basically like a parody of a Greek play. Ixion. Ixion. We'll that just works. mush them together. Ixion. Uh, and it was the first burlesque show in America. Now, when I say burlesque, we're not talking about striptease. That didn't come until the end of the genre. Um, but and then rather, it stayed. And then it stayed. <laughs> well, and... There's kind of been some comebacks to try and bring back the old form of burlesque um, because this was a type of variety show. It's sort of a proto-variety show. So you would have skits, comedy, dancing, singing, and a lot of what we in the tone-deaf biz call Richard humor. (laughs) And then, of course, there were scantily clad young women, but that wasn't the only thing about it. This was basically a major outlet for women to perform in and perform for themselves, like what they wanted to be doing. It was a bit freeing for them. Uh, It also was different from the other form of variety show that was around at the time, The Minstrel Show. I was going to ask if it was The Minstrel Show because I knew that was... A kind of variety show. Yes. Instead of doing racist caricatures and blackface, it was just body humor. It was just fun for adults, basically, without the rampant racism and blackface in there. And so this was... And there was indecency with it in this climate, because remember, this is the late 1800s, so... You know, ankles showing is kind of a, ooh, scandalous. <laughs> okay, not qu- okay. I'm not going to go into a history of clothing, but <laughs> there's a lot of things that we think were considered risque that actually weren't. But anyway, uh, let's see. Oh, I just got a pop-up on my computer. Go away. I don't care about you, McAfee. We are recording, We McAfee. are recording, McAfee. I do not want to renew you. <laughs> you piece of malware. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) 
So this indecency drew more and more people into the theater to see burlesque. And it led to more people wanting to put on their own burlesque shows, which led to a white man named Sam T. Jack deciding to try something new with it. In 1889, he started a new burlesque show that would boast an all-black cast that were not in blackface. Warren nods in approval. This show was called Sam T. Jack's Creole Show, and it boasted Creole. a chorus of 16 black women who were just gorgeous. Uh, Dora Dean, who was a uh, cakewalk dancer, and Charles E. Johnson, who was also a cakewalk dancer, and they later would become known as the king and queen of colored aristocracy. They also brought in Quadruple Threat, who's an actor, singer, comedian, and writer, Sam Lucas, who was previously known in minstrel shows, because remember, this is the main outlet for black actors in theater after the African Grove was closed down. Um, and then... He, this same actor had also played Uncle Tom in Uncle Tom's Cabin and was the first black man to play that role. Oh, okay. Yeah, which, you know, still a black man who got to play a black man, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. It wasn't Ira Aldridge-ish. Let's just put that out there. It wasn't like he was reviving that character, but he was cast in a role that normally would just go to a white man. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, he, the Creole show was incredibly successful on Broadway, and it ended up touring to even more success, and it ran for five seasons on Broadway. Nice. Which is, yeah, that's great, especially for an all-black cast. This is where we get our first proper black musical that doesn't exist anymore, because it was called The Octoroons. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> oh. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this was a touring show produced by John W. Isham in 1895, and it was sort of a hybrid between a minstrel show and a musical farce, because it had three acts like minstrel shows did, but it also had a story that ran through it. So according to MediaDiversified.org, Isham's The Octoroons opened in August of 1895 at the New York's Olympic Theater. The musical numbers and dance sketches in the first half were laid in the heart of the Tenderloin. The imperial involvement of the United States and Cuba and Southeast Asia also provided grounds for black farce. The second act was made up of talk about the war in preparation for the same and took place at a fictional training camp along Long Island called Camp Black a segregated unit where troops of African-American men were billeted. These men were eager to join Roosevelt's Rough Riders in Cuba and the conquest of Spain in the Philippines. Songs included My Filipino Babe and Hula Bula, both by Bob Cole and sung by Stella Wiley uh, with Walter Smart and George Williams. Following the Tenderloin Cakewalk Jubilee, <laughs> Such Wiley, a mouthful. Wiley assists Smart and Williams in a comedy sketch, which revolved around Smart's need of a horse in order to join the troops fighting so gallantly for freedom. This show is no longer extant, so that's about all that we get of it. So, uh, this show led to more avenues for other black entertainers, such as soprano Matilda Cicerette Joyner-Jones, Joyner uh, born in 1869 in Virginia. 
She was compared to the opera singer Adelina Patti after her performance in 1892 in the Madison Square Garden. Uh, she wasn't a fan of the nickname that was given to her after this, which was Black Patty. Can't imagine why. Yeah, like, oh, you know, don't... I mean, I'd be fine if people want to call me White Warren. <laughs> Rolls well, because her name Peter. wasn't even Patty. It was... They were basically saying, oh, she's the black version of this opera singer. And it's like, why not just say, hey, Matilda's an awesome opera singer instead of, oh, it's a black Adelina Patty. Anyway, uh, she led the blackface troupe, Black Patty's Troubadours, which toured from 1895 to 1916. And um, she was, Matilda was able to showcase her talent at the finale of the shows, singing spirituals and arias as sort of a relief after the rest of the show being a blackface performance. Okay. And this was also a springboard for many other black entertainers, as in the 20 years that the, that the troupe performed, many of of these actors got their first training in vaudeville and acting and then went on to bigger careers. And Jones also set the standard for female vocalists at the time. Now remind me, vaudeville is like the comedic acting, right? Yes. Okay. And minstrel shows and vaudeville are kind of the same thing. Not all vaudeville has blackface. Yeah, for sure. Because, yeah. um, uh, his name is evading me. Charlie Chaplin was vaudeville. Yeah, yeah, and he didn't do... I don't believe he did blackface. That um, could be wrong. Or at least I'm... there was plenty that he did that was not blackface exactly. if he did. Because I haven't seen any, any... I just wanted... Yeah, to... I feel like I would have seen something if he had. Warren just wants to make sure that the brain cells in his brain that are bumping into each other are communicating properly. And they are. Hey. Excellent. So... The world of, amount of American theater was about to be shook, however, because of two shows that hit New York. The first one was produced in the roof garden of the Casino Theater in 1898, and it was the first black-produced, written, directed, and performed musical. Cool. This musical was called Clorindy, or Origin of the Cakewalk. So we're going to be talking a little bit later about some of the people... Uh, involved in this, but I'll just give you a quick thing with Clorindy. So this was a ragtime operetta that was in one act, and it was composed by Will Marion Cook, who we'll talk about later, with lyrics by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. The 26-person cast was led by Ernest Hogan and featured the, fall of the vaudeville performers Burt Williams and George Walker, who we'll also talk about, and was one of the early roles for soprano Abby Mitchell, who will come back later in this episode as well. So keep keep Will Marion Cook, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Williams and Walker, and Abby Mitchell in your mind. That's so, a lot of names for me to remember. Okay, don't worry. We'll get to them. We'll get to them again. So Remember when I got Weber and Sondheim mixed up like 15 times? Oh, that's right. Okay, don't worry about it. We'll cover it in a sec. Thank you. <laughs> so, this show opened as what was considered an afterpiece to Edward E. Rice's play, Summer Nights. Uh, this is from Black Broadway. As legend has it, Clorindy opened on July 5th, 1898, to an audience of roughly 50 people. But as the music was heard by the audience leaving the theater below, many came upstairs searching for the source of the magnificent choral singing. The show was a triumph, with the performers receiving a 10-minute ovation at the end of the evening. Wow. Yeah. Pretty huge. 
So this led to Cook's career skyrocketing, and we'll rejoin him in a minute after we talk about... Oh, Lord, another show that was released the same year. So in 1891, there was this all-white show called A Trip to Chinatown that I have no desire to look into, but we might have to at some point. <laughs> oh, that bad. Just... I'll, I'm sitting here going, 1890s, white people, Chinatown's in the title, and what the spoof that we're going to be talking about is makes me think that this show was super racist. That's just my assumption. We'll see. So, uh, composer Bob Cole and lyricist William Johnson, two black men, created a parody of it called... A trip to Coontown. Warren face palms and hangs his head in disbelief, yet somehow not disbelief because racism. So the, the only thing that I can think of is that this is sort of maybe a reclamation of the term, because we're going to see this again with Williams and Walker. Um, that's, that's the only thing I can think of, or it's a way to draw in white audiences because they'll think that they're seeing one thing and then they get this musical, which actually is a bit subversive. So, uh, I, I'm afraid to look up anything on YouTube for this show because internet, and I do not want to type in the title of this show and have horrible racist stuff show up. Because then I will get angry, and then you will hear me swearing, and it will be bad. <laughs> so that's why I haven't looked this one up on YouTube at all to see if there's anything. But I'm pretty sure there isn't, because I, I don't think this show has been performed since its Broadway run. So this was the first full-length musical completely produced by uh, Black uh, by a black production company and then written, directed, acted, etc. by black people. Um, like I said, Clarindy was only one act. This is a full musical. Uh, this show was inspired by minstrel shows, but Cole created a character called Willie Wayside, who was a white drunk hobo. And, <laughs> and he performed it in whiteface. Like I said, subversive. And Johnson took on the character Jimmy Flimflammer, who was a con artist, but he was nothing like the racist caricatures that would normally be used for a black con man. Okay. So, subversive. And the initial run ran for eight shows before launching a successful tour. Then they had another sold-out run in New York at the Grand Opera House before launching another tour and then returning for a final New York run at the Casino Theater in the same roof garden where Cl Clorindy had had its successful run. Nice. I'm glad that they've had all this success. Yeah. No, this is huge. It's, it's one of those things where even if there's stuff that is problematic, this is also groundbreaking. It's, all of this is. It's positive steps forward on... A path with broken glass kind of thing. Yeah, and, like, you have to do what will get your audience, which sucks. It really does, but that's what they had to do. But it's it's almost like they, they I don't want to say they lured them in with 
the preconceptions of what it might be, and mm-hmm. then we're able to subvert those preconceptions by showing uh, characters and situations that were asymmetrical to what it was standard for the time. Yeah. And, and then people enjoyed it. Yeah, and then that, that kind of moves that the bar forward. Yes. So now we're going to talk about another groundbreaking show. And in lieu of me attempting to recreate Indahomey without any sheet music, and because I need to rest my voice, I'm instead just going to kind of tell you the history of the show and the history of Burt Williams, George Walker, and Mill Marion, er, Will Marion Cook. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how many times I typed Mill Wary and Cook? Fifteen hundred. I hold a bachelor's degree. <laughs> <laughs> so Bert Williams was born Egbert Williams in eighteen seventy six. Egbert. I knew you would like that. And George Walker was born in eighteen seventy two. They met in 1893 in San Francisco and got their start in the vaudeville and minstrel show circuits, notably being one of the first black acts to appear at the Coaster and Niles Music Hall. So, all these guys were pretty groundbreaking. So, Williams had originally wanted to go to Stanford for engineering, but he wasn't able to afford it, so he ended up as a singing waiter in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, but... Yeah. That just showcases how talented this guy was, that he was intelligent enough to want to be an engineer, mm-hmm. but he couldn't afford it, mm-hmm. but he was a good enough and talented singer to, like, be able to slide into this other thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, uh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. And so, uh, Walker, meanwhile, was already traveling with minstrel shows and medicine shows when he met Williams. It's a medicine show. So, do you remember in Sawbones when they would talk about oh, the folks that would be like, no. oh, I have snake oil, come yeah, buy this. Yeah, where they do, they, they put on just, yeah. they try to wow the crowd to get them hyped up to buy yeah. the garbage. Or the hair oil scene in Sweeney Todd, that's yeah. a medicine show. Yeah, gotcha. Where yeah. it's just, just lots of theatrics to get people excited to, to, buy, to buy a product something. that will probably kill you. <laughs> so... Uh, now, Williams was a lighter-skinned black man than Walker, which would normally mean that Williams would be the straight man while Walker would be the funny man in these minstrel shows. However, Walker was better as the straight man to Williams' funny man, so they just found success in this reverse role. Okay, so so make sure... So the, the normally the darker guy would be the goofy one, and the lighter, the lighter guy would be the more straight and narrow, and they just swapped yeah, it. Yeah, they swapped it. And it was successful. And since this was the early era, they were still performing blackface because this is vaudeville, a.k.a. minstrel shows, a.k.a. not burlesque. So in order to differentiate themselves from the white blackface troops that existed in this time and often build themselves as coons, William and Walker called themselves the two real coons. And... Anything that you see with those two, that's what it's titled for the first part of their career. (sighs) Okay. Yeah, so their performances also helped popularize the cakewalk in non-black circles. This, the cakewalk's a plantation dance that was sort of a mix of West African dance, Seminole War dance, according to some sources, and a mockery of their white masters. <laughs> so, according to this former ragtime performer, Shepard Edmonds, he said, 
The cakewalk was originally a plantation dance, just a happy movement they did to the banjo music because they couldn't stand still. It was generally on Sundays when there was little work and that the, sl that the slaves, both young and old, would dress up in hand-me-down finery to do a high-kicking, prancing walk-around. They did a takeoff on the manners of white folks in the big house, but their masters, who gathered around to watch the fun, missed the point. It's supposed to be that the custom of a prize started with the master giving a cake to the couple that did the proudest movement. Thus, cakewalk. Okay, I was going to ask you what a cakewalk was, but then I was like, okay, she'll she'll explain it to you, don't get ahead. <laughs> so, uh, he also said that it was meant to satirize the competing culture of the supposedly superior whites. Slaveholders were able to dismiss its threat in their own minds by considering it as a simple performance which existed for their own pleasure. Pay no attention to the black people, they're just doing this to entertain themselves. Mm -hmm. And not going... Look at these idiots thinking that we, yeah. like, I, I, I love the bits of subversion uh -huh. that were able to come about Absolutely. in the spirituals and in the, uh, and in dances like the cakewalk. It's just so amazing to see that. So William and Walker had wanted to add more African influences to their performances, this is where Will Marion Cook and the musical In Dahomey come in. So Will Marion Cook was born January 27th, 1869 in Washington, D.C. His parents were both free blacks before the war and stressed education early in his life. His father died of tuberculosis in 1879, Aww. and so due to economic hardship, Will and his siblings were sent away to live with relatives because his mom couldn't support them all. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. So Will lived with his maternal grandparents in Tennessee for about a year. They had been slaves who bought their freedom during the war. And uh, this is also where Will was exposed to what he described as real Negro melodies. A year after that, he was sent from, or he was uh, sent back to his mother because his grandparents felt it best for Will to not be in the South. After, yeah, good call. <laughs> yeah. After this time, Will decided he needed to focus on his music, taking violin at the Oberlin Conservatory at age 14. Good job. In 1887, he studied music at the Berlin Hochschule für Musik. Some, some say he was overseas for nine years, but that's kind of anecdotal. But we do know that he was um, at this Berlin Hall uh, from 1887 to 1889. And then back in the United States, he studied under Antonin Dvorak, 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 something like that. There's a D in front of the V, so... I bet you the D is silent. It's got to be silent. Um, however, because of racism and segregation, a career as a soloist wasn't in the cards for him. Luckily, musical theater's a thing. So we already talked about Clarindy, which he worked on. Um, but after that, he began to work as the composer-in-chief for Williams & Walker, who had started the Burt Walker George Williams Company. It was at this time that In Dahomey was created. Uh, it was a satirical look at the somewhat ill-fated Back to Africa movement of the 1800s, like early 1800s. Fun fact, this movement is what led to the creation of Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Haiti as independent black-run nations, 
but that is better covered by other podcasts, so we'll go back to musicals, which is our wheelhouse. Good call. So, this is a show that does have extant scripts and scores, but again, it's never performed in the version that it originally was performed in. More on that when we get back to the second revival, and the score is extremely hard to come by as seen by me ranting last episode <laughs> about it being $135 to get it. <laughs> so, according to this program from a 1903 performance, this is the synopsis. An old Southern Negro, Lightfoot by name, president of the Dahomey Colonization Society, loses a silver casket, which, to use his language, has a cat scratched on its back. He sends to Boston for detectives to search for the missing treasure. Shylock Homestead and Rareback Pinkerton, Williams and Walker, the detectives in the case, failing to find the casket at Gatorville, Florida, Lightfoot's home, accompanied the colonists to Dahomey. Previous to leaving Boston on their perilous mission, the detectives join a syndicate. In Dahomey, rum of any kind when given as a present is a sign of appreciation. Shylock and Rareback, having free access to the syndicate's stock of whiskey, present the king of Dahomey with three barrels of appreciation and in return are made cabashiers, governments of a province. In the meantime, the colonists, having had a misunderstanding with the king, are made prisoners. Prisoners and criminals are executed on festival days known in Dahomey as Customs Days. The new cabasiers, after supplying the king with his third barrel of appreciation whiskey, secure his consent to liberate the colonists, after which an honor is conferred on Rareback and Shylock, which causes them to decide there's no place like home. So... There are some notable things about this musical, other than it being the first full-length musical by Black Americans to be performed in a Broadway house. One of the things was this bizarre transformation scene at the end that confused the heck out of audiences. Yeah. So they moved it to the beginning. Hmm. And the scene, this weird scene culminated in a 20-minute production number ending in a cakewalk. Okay. So, you know, it... it when they have their 11 o'clock number, they have their 11 o'clock number. Gotcha. Like, it's a true showstopper. So, uh, Will Marion Cook and Paul Lawrence Dunbar weren't the only ones writing the music for this show, but they are the two main ones that are credited. And this musical also featured Will Marion Cook's first wife, who we talked about in Clorindy. Her name was Abby Mitchell. And she actually later went on to originate the character Clara in Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, and was the first person to ever record Summertime. Hmm. Which is the, Summertime and the living is easy. That one. Um, that's about as much as we can sing for copyright. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, Cook and Dunbar utilized a lot of different styles in this musical, from classical to ragtime, from lyrics with heavy dialects to lyrics that wouldn't sound out of place in Gilbert and Sullivan or other apparatus at the time. And Indahomey ran for 53 performances in its first Broadway run, which is really good for that time. Uh, then it was moved to England, as in sets, costumes, actors, everything. And there it was hugely popular. Nice. It was even performed at Prince Edward's son's birthday before it came back to the U.S. That's awesome. Yeah, and it came back as a revival in 1904 for a 17-performance run before a 40-week U.S. tour. Wow. Yeah. 
This is also the first black musical to have its score published. Granted, it was published in England because America, but still. (laughs) (laughs) It was also uh, pretty huge because while it showcased some racial stereotypes from back in the day, mostly against Chinese people, it was the first one to really have black characters that weren't just stereotypes in a musical. Because Trip to Coontown, while they did subvert stuff, it still wasn't quite like this. Um, In 1999, Chanel Perry actually, she's a uh, black playwright, wrote and directed the revival of this musical at the Henry Street Settlement. From everything that I can see, it was pretty much revived in the same way as Flower Drum Song was. So same characters, same songs, different story. Um, but unfortunately, I can't find any other information on this or any video of it. So if anyone has that, I would be forever in your debt. (laughs) Um, so we don't really have an extant version of this show, and I'm too tired to read the whole play to you, and I can't really provide anything with the songs. So instead, let's see some stuff that would give you a little bit of context. We're gonna go watch some cakewalks listen to some music from Will Marion Cook, and then you can kind of see Burt Williams and George Walker's uh, sort of dynamic with the silent film that they did in 1916. And then we'll come back and talk about it. Alrighty. Any questions before we go? Nope, but I'm sure I'll have questions after. Awesome. Let's go. Hey, Warren. Hey, Kay. Do you know what time it is? Is it time to thank our favorite people in the whole world? Heck yeah! Today, we would like to thank our stage crew sponsor, Jasmine Wu, and our producer circle sponsors, Bianucci, Reagan, and Taylor Brandt. Thank you all so much for your support of our show. We truly appreciate it. Hey folks, I want to highlight another great podcast today. This show, Black Girls Do Stuff Too, is hosted by Nick and Tiffany, and they talk about pop culture, they talk about food, they talk about current events, all sorts of stuff from a black woman's perspective. This show is hilarious, it's great, it's one of my favorites to listen to. I've been binging it the last couple of weeks, uh, just sort of trying to stretch out my time with it because I'm almost out of episodes of this show to listen to, but... They're great people. I'd also suggest following them on Twitter just because they are awesome. Please be sure to check out Black Girls Do Stuff too on your favorite podcatcher. And now, the lights are going down and the music's starting back up, so let's head back to the second act of our show. Okay, babe, so what did you think with your little various introductions there with my with my uh, fragmented snack bits of mm-hmm. different stuff uh it was good it was mm-hmm. it was I'm, I'm it's such a bummer that there isn't more mm-hmm. saved from that era yeah because uh, the what's funny is is seeing it and seeing um memories kick off in my brain like oh i swear i've seen this before i've seen this reference or i've seen something yeah super similar to this especially the cakewalk yes the cakewalk was super familiar and then the uh the gambler uh, short that we watched yes what was that called um 
Let me grab the title real quick. There's something cause... gambler, but that one, um, that, that was vaudeville, right? Or vaudeville-ish? That one was sort of vaudeville-ish. Because um, I had like a, oh, sorry. So it was called A Natural Born Gambler. Natural and that Born one, Gambler. I don't know why my brain didn't jog this, you need to save this for later, because we're going to cover Burt Williams some more, because he's kind of like a pioneer, but I wanted to cover just sort of the early phase of Burt Williams' career here, when he was in the Walker, or the Williams and Walker company, because uh, after George Walker's death of syphilis in 1911, he went on to do his own thing. And that's when we'll get into Ziegfeld Follies and stuff. But with Natural Born Gambler, that was one of the first black films. Like, written, directed, produced, acted by a black man. Then you said, like, uh, one the only white people in that was, one was the, uh, the sleuth who was mm -hmm. uh, finding out that there was illegal gambling going on. Yeah. And then I think the others were just the cops and yeah. everybody else was black. Yeah, everybody else was black and it was Burt Williams in control of that one. Because the stuff is entertaining and you can definitely see where, uh, not, I don't want to say progress, but where um, it inspired the yes. stuff that came after. Like, yes. Uh, yeah, I I wish that yeah I wish the audio stuff we listened to could have been better a little bit better because yeah. yeah it was hard to appreciate the majesty of mm -hmm. it other than Will Marion Cook's stuff because his stuff was better yes. preserved that stuff was definitely pre better preserved um, which that was really interesting to listen to mm -hmm. because as we were talking about it like there was such a, a evolution within that like it started out and we were talking about how it sounded so tribal in the mm -hmm. beginning in the overture yeah in the overture and then it definitely just it it felt like it i hate i don't know if this is the tone that he was going for but when i was listening to it i could very much kind of get the sense of um being in the tribe in africa and mm -hmm. kind of like having this more traditional music and then the transition because there were parts that it almost felt like sad and then mm -hmm. it would kind of pick up yeah and it almost kind of seemed to me at least in my head pictures as i was mm -hmm. listening to it mm -hmm. had that kind of tone of like over oh, here minding our own thing and then we get taken over here and mm -hmm. it sucks and then we're climbing back because that because it ends in in a much more positive mm -hmm. uh sense than the middle of it sounded and what... i don't know if that's what he was trying to probably not but that's probably me just reading into it because with an overture like that they're usually taking snippets of songs later in the show ah. so it's songs that happen throughout the play and we did get to listen to a uh orchestra only version of emancipation day which is the last song of the show that is included in the 20-minute cakewalk. Yeah. That was the one that had the uh, the sheet music pop-up. Yeah, the sheet music pop-up that we couldn't read because the power lines got messed up by the snow here. Yeah, we were, we were reading it, and then it, about halfway through it uh, got fuzzy. Yeah, but and it was just like, no! I was, I was doing my best to try and, like figure out how the lyrics would go to the music but mm -hmm. as the title of the show indicates i am very tone deaf so <laughs> it is all right a, it is all right it's a sisyphean task if there ever was one <laughs> but yeah watching the cakewalk that was being performed i kind of was sitting here going 
once my knee is back up to snuff, that will be an amazing form of cardio and strength training. Because I use, <laughs> I, when I would do shows, that was one of the dance moves that we would do was doing the different cakewalk parts of like well i mean i'm watching them do it and i'm like man that was really good for your your quads and your hamstrings so like they're when they're going forward i'm like yep that's a good quad yeah. exercise and they're going backwards i'm like yep that's a good hamstring exercise yeah and what's what's really nice so library of congress had uh two that we watched that were from like the 1903 yeah. 1906 around there um so you could see authentic cakewalk and then there was one that we watched that was from a scene from a movie and uh it has the black actors doing the cakewalk on stage for a white audience and mm -hmm. this is because after the cakewalk got popularized and white people liked it they took it and said you can't watch it in yeah. these dance halls and uh. yeah it was <sighs> history of musical theater is rooted in racism stupidity galore yeah so that was uh for your for the introduction to cakewalk and then we watched a reconstruction of it by a more modern group doing they did a good job yeah they did an amazing job um and there were a couple of times where I was like, please, folks in the audience, stop trying to clap to it. You're clapping oh, on one and three. You clap on two and four. You were so please funny God, with that. Please, God, just clap on two and four. You were so funny with that. <laughs> you don't clap on one and three. <laughs> yeah, when they were going, there, there's a part of me that wanted to do the yell at the screen and be like, stop clapping. Just wait till they're done, then clap. Or or if you're, if you're going to clap, clap on two and four. Like if you're clapping with the music, clap on two and four please folks don't clap on one and three one and three just sounds wrong <laughs> it's like the one uh performance that i did where some guy was leading a clap in the audience and i kept trying to get everyone <laughs> back on two and four and i it, it was just like no yep. no no <laughs> that used to happen too when i'd be in church at the lutheran churches and people just could not clap on two and four and there was one time when uh, they tried to do a spiritual. Really? Mm-hmm. That wasn't one of the times I was there, was it? Nope. That was before we met. And it was just one of those things where they had this white soprano woman singing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And it did not come out right. I remember you telling me about this now. <laughs> I felt so bad because I'm just like, oh, you're trying. You're trying. You're trying. You're trying, but that's not. No. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's the it's one of those things. You just kind of go. That's the thought that counts. It's the thought that counts. You you were moved by the spirit, kinda. <laughs> <laughs> spirit came down, but didn't give you the right rhythm. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. And it was nice too because there were a couple of reconstruction or not reconstructions. A couple of uh, surviving. Uh, things on youtube of recordings of both walker and williams because with williams dying in 1911 you don't have video of him but you do have audio so it's really nice that he's still preserved a little bit mm -hmm. um and then of course or did i say walker or williams dying in 1911 I'm so tired that I... Walker is the one who died, right? Yeah, Walker died in 1911. You might have said Williams. We'd I have might to have said Williams. 
Uh, but Williams, you know, lived until 1922, and dur through that time, uh, and we'll talk about him some more, he sort of made sure that he had control over his uh, production, production and over what he did in shows. He was involved in the Ziegfeld Follies, uh, which we'll talk about later. Um, but like I said, he was able to do uh, two early black films, and I believe Natural Born Gambler was the first black produced, written, and directed film. It looked old. <laughs> yeah, it's that one's 1916, and uh, his two films were uh, Natural Born Gambler and Fish. And we didn't watch Fish because... Latte did not like the fact that we were watching a silent movie. <laughs> that was funny. The dog's reaction. <laughs> You're just staring in silence. Because <laughs> this, this version didn't even have a soundtrack. Like, there was not even music to it. It was silent. And every so often our dog would just sigh. Just like, they're staring at the wall. <laughs> They've gotten dumber. They're staring at the wall. Oh, no. Well, there's food in my bowl, so I won't starve. I won't starve. The stupid box has them. <laughs> so, yeah, that was... But, yeah, it's it's good that there's still some recreations, even if they're not complete. It's It's a little bit less infuriating than, like, the drama of King Shot Away, where we literally just have a, this is what it was about. Yeah. This is who did it. Enjoy. Because <laughs> as, as we get further on, there will be more uh, either actual footage or reconstructions that we can glean from. But this early period, it's rough. It's it's hard to get stuff unless we're reading it. And, and I have to Indahomey use my... is long. Imagination. Yeah. And, and Indahomey is long. And I did not want to read that, especially because the uh, an upcoming one that we will be doing is even longer. Uh, it's it's it's. But I wanted to do it because it's an early black play by a female playwright. So. Sorry. Ding 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 ding. Uh, so it's it's a play by a early black female playwright. So. You know, that'll be, that'll be a fun thing to cover, but it's going to be a longer show for me to read. Yeah. So that's why I kind of, I'm like, okay, into homie, I'm not going to even attempt to read that one to you. That's okay. And reconstruct it without you, the music. Because the fact that you read two shows already, mm -hmm. each was 90 minute five act plays. Yeah, they're, they're, they're long. <laughs> the older plays are long. Um, they're, they're not as long if you're not the only one doing them. <laughs> 1K Productions are luckily going to cease to be a regular thing as we get further along in our Black History Tour. They are marvelous, though. Aw, thanks. So, uh, this was just sort of a brief synopsis of early Black musicals. There were other ones, of course. There was Abyssinia, Sons of Ham... Um, a couple of others, but it just was sort of easier to focus on Clorindy, A Trip to Coontown, and uh, In Dahomey than on going through all of them, especially because 
a lot of the early ones don't have anything really other than they did this show. <laughs> yeah. So that's that'll be it for that one. Uh, next episode, I'm kind of excited because we're going to go into the uh, pageants, the black pageants that occurred. And these were sort of like history pageants almost okay um when you said black pageant i i it a a a different version of toddlers and tiaras came to mind <laughs> oh I, but not with toddlers and yeah no remember we're out of we're out of the super dark period we're <laughs> into slightly better for my people period <laughs> slightly better because we're 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 not going back any further. We're going to be just in the late 1800s now. So um, our next one, we're going to cover Star of Ethiopia, which is W-E-B Du Bois. Not Du Bois, like I mispronounced earlier. Du Bois. Du Bois' name's not Du Bois. <laughs> it's not Du Bois. And I... What's sad is that I even, like, had just seen a thing talking about, oh, his name was pronounced Du Bois. And I was going, oh, okay, Du Bois, Du Bois, Du Bois, Du Bois. And what do I do? Du Bois. <laughs> du Bois sounds fancy. And it du does. Bois, du Bois sounds like a modern day rapper or something well, like that, now presenting DJ Du Bois. And the thing is, is that I was like, I think it was too because I'm reading it and my brain, having only taken three years of French in elementary school, somehow went, <laughs> oh, oh, I-W, that's wah. You, you like, took. No. You understand French better than I do. <laughs> Just slightly, only slightly, S only slightly. Stupid French. But yeah, so what it is is it's going to be kind of like these weren't plays, but they weren't parades, but they were kind of a mix between the two. They were trying to innovate and create something new. Closest thing that I can think of before we get into it next episode is think the 4th of July stuff in Music Man. That's what these were. But this was more African history and stuff like that instead of... my One of my least favorite scenes one from... One of your least favorite scenes from Music Man. <laughs> Warren doesn't like racism or anything like that, in case you guys knew. And Funny that. That one scene, that one scene in Music Man is pretty uh, horrible. Not even in hindsight. It was just horrible. Yeah, funny. <laughs> funny me being that way. I know. So so strange. So strange you being good and decent. So, yeah, next week we're going to talk about Star of Ethiopia. After that, uh, we're going to cover female playwrights. And then we're going to cover my least favorite trope. And then we'll be able to move into stuff that's a little bit better. <laughs> Thank goodness. Star is born in Ethiopia. Oh, my God. <laughs> So thank you all for listening <laughs> to our show. Um, hopefully nothing has uh, upset anyone <laughs> as we're trying to make light of serious things on occasion. Um, if you would like to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're Tone Deaf Musical at all of those places. You can find links to all of those things on our website, which is ToneDeafMusical.com. Uh, you can also find the Cast Junkie Discord server through there. Uh, remember, our channel is marked not safe for work because we swear. Because me. My and, bad. 
And uh, on our website, you can also find some shirts if you would like to buy them and coffee mugs. It's another way to help support the show. Um, we do have a Kofi, 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 K-O-F-I. However, it's I guess it's spelled, coffee. Spelled coffee. Uh, pronounced coffee. Uh, spelled Kofi. Pronounced coffee. Yes, spelled Kofi. Pronounced coffee. Um, so if you don't want to do recurring, uh, like chipping in and helping out with the show, that's fine. Um, you can do it through our coffee, which is tone deaf musical. If you want to throw Kay a dollar for her mental anguish. Oh gosh. Yeah, um, we also have our Patreon, which we have our wonderful, wonderful patrons that we talked about at intermission, um, and that is Tone Deaf Musical as well. You can find a link to that on our website, too. Just, our website's got it all. Um, it's got it all. It's even got videos of our, uh, of the sources that we had for our first Black History episode on Agungun and Galede, um, which... You know, just a reminder for folks that don't remember that it's on there. It's on there. So, yeah. Anything you'd like to add, babe? I would just like to thank you for all the hard work you're doing on this. And Thanks, I'd like to honey. thank our wonderful listeners for checking in with us. And, and uh, yeah. Thank you. So, thank you guys again so much. It's It's just, we like sharing this stuff with you. And we just, we love you all so much. Mwah. So that'll be it for today. I'm Kay. I'm Warren. And this has been Tone Deaf.